0: Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church, and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. I've just come off a very brief occasion. Normally we take a chunky summer break, but this year it's not been possible with Merrill doing a summer intensive. And uh, so what I decided to do was not do my normal devotional life. But just anchor myself in one book. I love my devotional life for as long as I can remember from the time I came to faith. I wake up early, I have my book, I journal, I engage with God, I start off by saying, Good morning, Father. Uh, and if I'm really a bit weary and a bit exhausted, I invariably say something like, how are you? Which is an intriguing question to ask one who's always perfect and always well. But then he very courteously answers me and he says, I'm really fine, thank you, how are you? And then I realise it probably was an indecent question to ask. One out of British courtesy, but very little spiritual value. But I've, I've, I've earthed myself in this book. And so what I'm going to do in the two services is just extract some of the great pieces in it and uh, we're going to just dive straight in. For the sake of time, I don't know if you guys at the back, I'm sure you can. Can we jump to verse 7 of chapter 2 and we'll read through to verse 17. John, 1 John, chapter 2, verse 7 onwards. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling but whoever hates his brother in the dark is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes i'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake i'm writing to you fathers Because you know him who is from the beginning, I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the evil one. That's the passage we will look at in the second service. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, The desires of the eyes of the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, and whoever does the will of God abides forever. Father, grant us insight and revelation today as we explore the width and wonder of these few verses. You're, You're incredible. You take simple words to transform our lives. You make a comment, and we are adjusted. You give a word, and we are embraced and i ask today that we will make much of jesus and that you would coach us and coax us to greater intimacy with you the living god jesus the one you sent the eternal savior and the holy spirit who is ever instructing us in greater insights in your precious name amen Amen. i love this book the older i get the more fatherly i am i think and I love being a dad. It's probably, outside of being a husband, the thing I love most. And, uh, but, but this is a story, written a letter written by an old man. It's probably written around about AD 80 to 90. John is the only one left of the originals. Probably around about 85. He's a really old man. I think when he was writing this, he starts from the beginning. I, I can imagine, and I'm sorry I preach with my imagination, that That which was from the beginning that we heard. I can imagine him standing looking out the window um, and dictating. He probably wasn't recording it anymore. He had a scribe writing it down, but his mind is captive to how it all started. He was there when it began he walked with Jesus, he felt his love, he leaned into his chest, a very affectionate moment for a Hebrew man to be lying on another man's bosom, another man's chest, he was there at the cross when he saw the trauma of a, of, of, of a friend betraying the Messiah, of another friend denying him, he was of the only disciple who was there at the cross, and Jesus in his last moments of energy leaked out affection for his mother, mary and for his friend john and he said uh, john your mother mother your son a moment of sublime responsibility He was there when he saw the first martyr, Stephen. He was there when the gospel began to go forth. He was there when the persecution began. He was there when Paul planted Ephesus and then he handed it to Timothy. And then John took over the work. He was there on the Isle of Patmos when 40,000 Christians were slaughtered just across the water's edge. He was there writing his letter, the, the revelation of John. Now he's an old man. And he's writing with incredible affection, using language like little children and sons and fathers because he loves them deeply. Eusebius, the great Christian historian, the first one we have records of, gives an account of John, now as an old man, leading a young man to faith. But because of his travels, he leaves him in the care of the bishop of Ephesus, and after several months comes back, circles back round to Ephesus and calls up the bishop to say how is this man doing oh said the bishop he's dead John is devastated what do you mean he's dead oh said the bishop he's dead to the Lord what had happened is the bishop had gotten distracted by all the the runnings and the administrations of the church and neglected keeping his eye on this young new convert He said, this man has left the fellowship of the few and has gone once again to banditry, murder, and robbery. John is devastated, Eusebius writes. He grabs a horse, he's an old man, and he gets a guy to rush him up the mountain where these bandits, murderers, and every form of depravity lived. And he purposefully gets himself captured, and he says, take me to your leader. Sounds like a sci-fi movie. He gets there this young man that he had led to faith was now the leader of this band and this young man sits at a distance not recognizing him initially but the moment he walks closer now to execute judgment against this person who imposes his presence on this group of bandits he sees who it is and he turns and he runs John now an old man and Eusebius writes it most eloquently dashes after him pleading with him you may run young man But I, an old man, will run after you. The man stops and falls on his face. And John goes and puts his hand on him and weeps together and speaks of his second rebirth. It's a a sublime moment of a man who was prepared. He said, I would rather lose my life and my eternity, but that you would come back to the one who loved you first. So it's that spirit that drives this book, this incredible love, and I will die that you might live that allows us to see this text so exquisitely. Whenever I read a text like this, I I want to go to the front end and the back end because they give me the high points. I want to know why he writes it first and foremost, what he wraps up at the end to make it most valuable. And um, without rushing there... uh, Two things capture me, front end and back end. The front end is this. He says this, John does. He says, remember from the beginning what you, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked upon and what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of God. The life was, was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life. Two things I want to say there. This is an old man pleading. You know, my daughter and a friend toured Europe. When she graduated from college university uh, dana and katie traveled for three weeks it was at the time when liam neeson's movie taken came out so needless to say i didn't see the movie but i did plead sanity with my daughter who's known to be in the moment and passionate and radical like swimming naked in greece i mean those are things that are in the moment and worth having those they're, they're adventures i'm going to make a once in a lifetime experience out of it so i had a coach her because one of our close friends did something similar met with some Italians, she and her cousin met with some Italians and woke up the next day in a hospital. So this was a father's plea, mine, to Dana saying, I want you to be aware of it. And dear friends, this is what John is saying. You know, Dudley Daniel, who was my spiritual father, left LA. We thought he was dying. In fact, he did die twice. And the ambulance men here in Australia uh, kind of resuscitated him. Gave him the socks and whatever, but I remember sitting with him, Merrill and I. He had a bloated uh, t- uh, tummy from uh, liver cirrhosis because of a blood condition, and he could hardly speak. He spoke like this, and we leaned in because we knew that every word mattered. This is a text where every word matters. This is not the ramblings of a young man with many words that he's just going to blab all over us. These are five intense chapters of love profound love perfected by years of the scars and the heartache and i think as he stood there writing this he was thinking of how peter died wondering why he hadn't died the same way heard about thomas being slaughtered in india wondering why he was the one who survived uh, etc 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 and the front end point dear friends i'm so glad i have two preachers this morning because i've gotten nowhere fast in this first session (laughs) But, but, but what he does is he says two things. He says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you to remember what you've seen and heard and touched. I, I appeal to you. you. You know what that is, folks? In a community like this, this is exciting, and I love it. The worship's cool every time I'm here. The vibe, the ambience, the mood, the building. We can be carried along by it, but John has been by himself in solitary confinement on the Isle of Patmos, and then he knows corporate worship didn't keep him brotherly love didn't keep him it's that businessman who goes away i sat next to a businessman flying over here who's away two weeks of the month and there was no profession of faith particularly but i know many of our christian businessmen are alone in hotel rooms by themselves many a time what is the thing that keeps us jesus focused and pure but our story the great narrative of god's redemptive work in your life and mine Are you with me, dear friends? And the front end, he is pleading, I think, with us to remember what we've seen, heard, and have touched. What has God done in you and me that will hold us and anchor us no matter what society throws at us, no matter what loneliness shouts at us, no matter what challenges overwhelm us? We stand soberly and say, what I've seen, what I've heard, and what I've touched, no one can take it away from me. The second thing he says and he lands this way again, he speaks about eternal life, now these are musings of an old man, some theologian commentators try and nullify the book, weaken the book a little bit, because it seems like he's speaking in circles, almost like an old man who doesn't know where he's going, I think it's an old man who has all of his senses, he is saying these are the important things, Your story is an important thing because no one can take that away from you. And the second thing, front end, is eternal life. And he ends with it in chapter 5 when he says, He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You know, folks, there is the wonder that there is life before we began and there is life after we die It's life without end in all of its exquisite beauty, life without pain, life without trauma, life without heartache, life without limp that awaits us. In our postmodern world, there is no big narrative. To use the fancier language, there's no meta-narrative. There's no overriding story that we attach ourselves to. We are all loosely fragmented individuals who try our very best to live a life that has some value and quality, and then we die and it all ends. And somehow, John is as relevant to us today as he was then. When he starts his book by saying eternal life, he ends his book by saying eternal life. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what really matters. Now, can I be honest with you? I have an extraordinary marriage. Honestly, Mary and I, we're so different. We've had to work so hard at it. I look at some people's marriages and it seems, at least at one level, to have been so easy. We haven't always had it easy. I was a complex young man from an alcoholic home that came into marriage young, poorly defined, in my own brokenness, had to be on a journey of healing. Merrill came from a more well-rounded family with complexities, which I'm not privy to share. And so we have spent 35 years finding a story. But you know, there are two things that have kept me married. The one is the dream that we've always had, that when we were in our 80s, We will walk hand in hand on the beaches, because we love doing that. We walk hand in hand and reflect on God's goodness. Now, I'd love to give you a text or a promise from Scripture that held us together. I have to say, that wasn't one of them. It's this notion of we in our old age would walk together, reminiscing on how wonderful Jesus really is. The other thing was that I would stand before the Almighty. Being a father of daughters, I unapologetically defend them. I apologetically st- stand alongside them and with them. And my sons-in-law, who are both bigger than me, know that I would go down fighting. <laughs> Lift a hand to my daughter and I'll kill you, <laughs> unapologetically. You don't mess with them. And I knew, even in my darkest hour, when I could find very little grace in my heart to love Merrill, that I would stand before her dad one day and he's going to say, give me my daughter back. And I would need to give her back to him in a condition better than the condition I got her. And I will give an account to him for that. Whatever she does or doesn't do had no bearing on what I did. He's not going to negotiate with me and say, well, what did she do? Then what did you do? This is not a negotiated contract. This is I gave you my daughter to love and to nurture and to lead and to care and to raise up. And I want my daughter back and I want to see the condition you're giving her back to me. Ladies and gentlemen, eternity drives our conversation. This is a light journey. This is a short journey in the light of all things. You know what's interesting to me is that every major move of God, and I think I've been in five. What's interesting to me is that the conversation of eternity takes center stage. It may be with a twist and its theology may be weak, but it's as if God keeps reminding us Jesus is coming back. It's as if God keeps saying, live your life with eternity in mind. The pure, exquisite wonder of eternity. All other things, no matter how appealing they may be in the short term, are nothing more than distracting anecdotes to a far greater and wonderful story of just how magnificent he is. Just how magnificent eternity is. I don't know what picture is created in your mind, but I know that there'll be lots of childlike laughter. I know that there will be much of childlike joy, celebration, dancing, leaping. There will be wine, but wine without intoxication. It will be wine only attached with celebration and the pure wonder of a redeemed life there will be hugs there will be kisses there will be celebrations there will be campfire stories as we wax lyrical of the great things he's done with us and through us and in us and ladies and gentlemen I think John at the end of his life is saying to us don't forget it's all about eternity he starts that way he ends that way and to understand the book if you don't understand that you will think this book is about laws of trying to live right this isn't a book about living right. This is a book about eternity and the sheer magnificence of Jesus. And the moment we caught up into that, our heart leaps with joy and we adjust our lives accordingly. The other thing he, he lands with, he, it's almost like an afterthought. He says, but kids, I've got to remind you. Whenever I, when the kids were small and we left on a trip, I said, kids, remember, what is the rule? Have no fun. I mean that was kind of the 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 or at least wait till we leave before we have fun you know there was that that final climactic moment, and that was sarcastic. little children, keep yourselves from idols. Miroslav Volf, a great East European theologian. I'm growing to enjoy him I've not read much of him, but the more I read, the more I enjoy because he he too was forged out of the crisis, the civil war crisis of East Europe. But he writes this, he says, Our hearts become factories of idols in which we fashion and refashion God to fit our needs and our desires. Can I read that again? He says, Our hearts become factories of idols in which we fashion and refashion God to fit our needs and our desires. I have to land with this. I'm sorry, I didn't even get to the the other part, but... Tim Keller says this, idols are good things that become ultimate things. they good things that become ultimate things, like children. Children are good things. But they become ultimate things when we create our life story around our kids. Where I go depends on their ballet, tennis, or footy. Whether I come to prayer depends upon whether they're tired or not. See, what happens is a good thing, children, they're a gift from the Lord, become an ultimate thing whereby we now spin our lives around them. Work is a good thing. It's a good thing that we work. God gave Adam the garden before the fall. Work was not what came after the fall. By the sweat of our brow came after the fall. Work became the gift in the garden. Go and look after these animals. Name them. Go and play with them. Have fun. Adam and Eve, look look over, look, look beyond the, the, the mountains. Look into the blue mountains. Send your kids there. Brilliant. Raise them up to take my glory. Take them everywhere. And slowly but surely, what was good becomes ultimate. And so my life is functioning around the ultimate rather than around worship. Mm. See, because we are worshipers. We all worship. And my worship is either Jesus, and and that kind of worship means he is the foremost thought in my life and my life's decision. My voice is captivated by him that I want to sing his praise. And John, this old man, probably a little buckled and bent if I can create a picture in your mind, probably a little arthritic, he knows his days are numbered, maybe hours are numbered. And his final plea is, please remember your heart is a factory of idols and if you let it you will bow down at their altars the problem with idols is that they promise much los angeles is like that have you lived here 19 years i see it's a city that promises much come to hollywood and be famous come to the sunshine come to the city promises much Demands everything. I'll make you famous. But you lose your virtue. You lose your ethics. You lose your high value of people. I want that. And then delivers so little. Every day people are dragging themselves out of Los Angeles. Because an idol drew them. But an idol broke them. And dear friends, idols are traumatic because they will take everything from you. I don't know. We've sat too many times with a husband whose work, good thing, becomes an ultimate thing, six, seven days a week. It's where I worship because it's what gives me identity. I can't let it go. And I think John at the end of his life saying, I want you to focus on eternity and I want you to focus on he who is the object Of your true worship. And worship in that space. Husbands and wives worshipping in that space. Families worshipping in that space. This is an exquisite book. I don't know what I've gifted you this morning. But I hope there's enough intrigue to go back and to find the story behind this story. I've written each one of my kids a journal. And on their wedding day I give it to them. It has pictures, it has little memorances, anecdotes and stories. And it's a very moving moment when I give it to them. I've given my daughters each theirs and I'm busy writing my sons. Because what I try to do there is keep them focused on the main things. What are the important things in life? And this is what John has done. I want to give you that gift of intrigue today. Find out what the big things are. I've not given them all to you this morning. I've just introed and ended it. But I think in that is the gift that is far more tangible and lasting. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au.